This message is brought to you by this excellent church. We excel at reshaping people's values and reconciling men to God. You're about to hear peace and preach. Be blessed. We are praise for the last time. You are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of worthy of. Worthy of all our praise, yes, you are worthy of our praise. Hallelujah. Praise God. All right, so I had an inspiration some nights ago. I was praying in the middle of the night, and um, for some reason, the Holy Spirit just said I should just lay this on my heart. I, love, you know, I have a lot of things in my mind that, okay, that we can touch on, but the Holy Spirit just put this in my mind that. I should touch on this topic of Bible translations and whether KJV is the best or not. And um, at, the, at the time when the Lord laid that thing in my heart that night, I didn't really know. Okay, I was just like, okay, fine, let's go with it and all that. But as I'm praying and all that, I need to see a lot of more things that, um, you know, ought to be touched on with respect to honor for the scriptures and stuff like that. And um, differences that Christians have that is defined that are just things that are good for us to know. That will defy us in our knowledge of Christ and in thinking of the holy Catholic and apostolic church, which is the body of Christ that we belong to. Hallelujah. Praise God. So, there's a very strong theme, especially in um, Northern Europe and Western Europe. And we in Nigeria also, certain of our generations, of our father's generations also, adopted that idea and that view. And there's a subconscious feeling also that KJV translation is the good translation. I remember when I was younger, you know, all these other translations like in video say Satan that um, translated it and all that and all that. And to be fair, there are actually some translations that, you know, that are not okay. Praise God. You know, and um, the issue of translation is one of the things that um, the Christians, the critics of Christianity like to bring up, that we have different translations, so which one is the real word of God and all those kinds of things. And, you know, those kind of critiques actually stem those kind of critiques are more of a comment on the person's understanding of textual criticisms than a, a comment on the Bible itself. Praise God. It's someone that doesn't know or doesn't understand certain things, that, that asks certain things or says certain things about books or criticizes them in a certain way because they don't know or don't understand certain things. So I just feel I should just address some things this evening and um, we'll do, I'll talk about some things and then We'll have a brief discussion and maybe we can take a few questions if time permits. Hallelujah. So, is KJV really the best translation? Is it the best translation? Is it the best translation? Is it the best translation? So, before I get into KJV, how it came to be, I want to just quickly remind you guys broadly of um, how the Bible came to be. Well, and I know we've talked about this a couple of times. But you see, the KJV was translated in... Um, was commissioned by King James. Now, he was commissioned by King James. King James of England was first the king of Scotland. And this was the century after the Protestant Reformation, right? Protestant Reformation happened in the 1500s, early 1600s, 1604 to 1611. That's when the work was done. So King James came on board, and there was something that was going on at the time. So you guys remember this, this, the history of the Protestant Reformation, Abby? Martin Luther came in the early 1500s, came and broke out from the Catholic Church, and then Calvin came after, and then there was a whole movement that spread throughout Western Europe at the time, Scotland, 
you know um we had you know scotland ireland england germany they tried to get into spain but the whole holy roman catholic empire in spain was very strong so they didn't really allow them to enter but you know the, um, northern netherlands um germany switzerland you know those places they tried to get into france the huguenots tried to get into france but the catholic church was very strong in france you know and all that so that's what's going on 1500s right early 1600s um at that time even among the protestants themselves they began to break up among themselves so um remember king henry broke away from the catholic church that is um king james grandfather his grandfather right he broke away from the catholic church and you remember the reason why he broke in fact initially he himself was actually kind of like a strong catholic till he died so he was a very strong and devout Catholic, but he married a woman. The woman did not have children for him, and then he now fell in love with another person, with another woman that someone else had married before, and he was not supposed to marry the woman, and the Catholic Church did not endorse the marriage. It's really for, for political reasons. There was a cat political angle to it. The, the first wife was the daughter of the Habsburg dynasty, which was a strong ruling Roman Catholic dynasty, which was the closest ally of the Catholic Church. So they didn't want him to divorce her. So they, they said, they will not allow him to divorce. This was someone that before then he was persecuting Protestants seriously. He even was the reason why William Tyndale was exiled. Tyndale, the the person that first translated the Bible to English in the 1500s, it was the reason why that person was exiled. You know, and then Tyndale was eventually martyred in Europe, in England. So. It was so he didn't like Protestants. All of a sudden, when they now he said he wants to marry somebody else, Catholic Church said you cannot marry the person. He now said, ah, I'm not even doing it again. I'm not doing. I'm going to go and start up our church. <laughs> and so that's how he now <laughs> broke out and made the the Church of England, which we call the Anglican Church, from Anglo, the Anglican Church, the Church of England. And so he became the head of the Church of England and all that. So at that time. A lot of people that were around him began to tell him that, see, we need to have a Bible that is not in Latin. Now, before then, the Bible was just in Latin. Before the Bible was in Latin, it was in Hebrew and Greek. Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Do you understand? Now, so let's try and go back a bit into the past. Initially, before 600, 600 BC, right? Uh, before 600, 400 BC, before the, uh, what do you call it, the exile of the children of Israel, we have the Bible written in the Hebrew. The original owners of the language wrote their Bible in the Hebrew. During the exile, we had the Bible written in the Hebrew. Then the, then the period of Hellenization came about. That was when Alexander the Great conquered most of Europe and down to the Near East, isn't it? So when he conquered all those places, all those places now began to speak Greek. So that's why they now called it Hellenization. Do you understand? Like colonization. He colonized most of the Western world. Everybody now began to speak Greek. So after the time that he began to speak Greek, everybody, including in Jerusalem, too, began to speak Greek as a common language. Then the Roman Empire rose, and they were speaking their own Roman language kind of thing. But because Greek was like the language of the sophisticated people and the philosophers and the language of the Hellenized world, they began, Greek was like a co-official language that people were speaking. So all the Jews in the time of Jesus were speaking Greek because that world was the Hellenized world. Do you understand that? So just before that time of Jesus Christ, there was a, um, there was a king, I think it was Ptolemy. I, all these names, I, I tend to forget them. I'm not a historian, and of course I don't stay on it for long. I tend to forget names. 
and dates. But when you check it, you can confirm. So one of those um, emperors now decided that a lot of the Jewish people, I've told you guys this things before, let me just say it to refresh your mind. A lot of the Jewish people before the time of Jesus, just before the time of Jesus, I think a few hundred years before, like 200 years before the time of Jesus, there about 269 or something, they could not speak Hebrew again. It was now Greek that everybody was speaking. Do you understand? So when everybody began to speak Greek, this guy now came and now said, okay, it's time for us to convert the Bible, the Old Testament, from Hebrew to Greek so that everybody can speak it. Do you understand? So that's how we now have the Septuagint. Now, so that original Hebrew Bible did not have the Apocrypha books. So the Apocrypha books, many of them were written in that time of the exile, when they returned from the exile. Do you understand? So when the book was now, um, when the book was now, when the Bible was now being written in the Greek, the Apocrypha books were also added and everything and all that. So the time of Jesus, it was Greek Bibles or Hebrew Bibles that they were reading. Do you understand? So you see a lot of um, things where um, the contemporaries of the apostles were quoting the Greek. Sometimes, a few times, you see them quoting the Hebrew. Do you understand? So that kind of thing. So when, after Jesus died and rose again, the early Christians were still reading um, Greek, Hebrew, Greek um, Old Testament, Hebrew Old Testament. But when they were now writing New Testament, because Greek was the official language at the time, all the New Testament books were being written in the world, Greek. So everybody was reading the books in the Greek. Now, but the world was now changing. As the, what, what began to happen was that um, everybody, most people were speaking Greek, but with the rise and fall of the Roman Empire and then the splitting of the um, church, even, even long before them, the western half of the, of the empire, of the Christian world, that's the European side. Do you have a map of Europe in your head? The western side, many of them were speaking Latin. Do you understand that? So what now happened was that because a lot of people were speaking Latin as a language, you know, it was the language of the commoners, a lot of people began to translate the Bible into Latin. But in 382 or thereabouts, one of the emperors now came and now said, let someone now translate it properly. So someone now sat down and translated the Greek and the Hebrew Old Testament to Latin. That's what we now call the Latin Vulgate. That's the Latin Bible that the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church have been using since then. Do you understand that? Did you get that? So it was that Latin Bible that everybody's using. That's why when Catholics are reading it, it's Latin they talk about and all that. Do you understand? So that's the book that they've been using since that time. The Latin, um, Latin translation. So, now, back to the 1600s. So, when I find ourselves in the early 1600s, or first of all, in the, in the 1500s, then you have people like Erasmus. Erasmus was a Catholic, um, Catholic scholar, he, a humanist, very intelligent man. He was the friend of Martin Luther. If you remember, if you go and, look, go and check, go back and listen to that service where we talked about the Protestant Reformation. He was one of uh, Martin Luther's friends. So he now took the Latin, and now um, he now took the Bible, he took the Latin and found, looked for some Greek manuscripts and tried to reinterpret it into more contemporary Latin and Greek and now made them like parallel Bibles. Do you understand? So we now had a kind of like, because that Latin, imagine people reading Latin 1600s or the Latin they've been speaking since 380, 382, over 1,000 years. So you can understand that the Latin, you know, of course, language is dynamic. So Erasmus made it more contemporary. Martin Luther now translated Erasmus' version to German. So we now had a more contemporary Latin version and a more contemporary, um, um, what do you call it, Greek version. Do you understand that? Keep in mind something that's very important for you to understand at every point in time. When they were translating, 
Erasmus did not just take the Latin Bible and say, this is what I'm translating to the new current Latin. What he did was that he went to go and look for the oldest manuscripts of the Greek Bible and Hebrew Bible that were available and used it to translate. Do you understand that? So it was those, those were the books. So in, um, so when James now came on board, at this time, the English church was completely Protestant. They were not Catholics again. The Catholics were not that much again. It was like basically a, a Protestant country, so to speak. But among the Protestants now, they were now fighting. We had the Establishment Church of England, Anglican people, and then we had the Puritans. The Puritans were fighting with the Anglican people over some little minor things like, is, we, we look at it doctrinally, you think it's minor, but to them it was not minor. And that will bring me to something I want to say later on. They were arguing over things like vestments, whether priests should be writing, wearing cloak when they are talking. Or, you know, Anglican church, they like to wear cloak. Puritan says, no, let's wear normal clothes and suit in church. And they'll be arguing at you know, that that's what was causing their problem, that they say, we're going to go and start our another church. Those kind of things. Now, because of that, they want to start their other church. So these Puritan people too now said, even the Geneva, oh God, so many facts. So at that time in England, the English Bible they were using were books like the Great Bible, the Geneva Bible. So the Puritans said that they want to use the Geneva Bible, that they're not using the Great Bible that was interpreted in the time of Henry. That's the time. Okay, that's why I, I, I jumped. I, I forgot. I was supposed to go back to. In Henry's time, they now translated the Bible into an English Bible. Do you understand? One of William Tyndale that was martyred, one of his own mentees or spiritual sons, actually the one that now ended up doing the work. The Puritans now said they were not okay with that translation, that they want to go with Geneva Bible. Geneva Bible is another English translation, the first English translation that was done. So they were just arguing and bickering among themselves. Jim just now said, He now gathered like, I think, 47 of them. Let me get my facts right. He now gathered 47 scholars. He said, all of you, sit down. Go and bring the original Greek manuscripts and the Hebrew manuscripts all of you, 47 scholars, top priests and, of course, you understand, that could all speak all the languages and everything. Now says, we will sit down and translate it into a good version that all of us can be happy about. He even told them, this version you are translating into, you must not make any notes in the side. Because in those days, translations, I'll tell you the reason why notes, making notes by the side of the translations was very important to translators. You understand now? So, he now said, don't make any notes. This Bible is not for you or against anybody. Just make an English Bible that is good, that is faithful, that is based on, you know, your best scholarly work and sit down. So 47 of them sat down and they gave them certain portions of the Bible and the came together and they spent, uh, what do you call it, Cal- uh, 4 minus 11. They spent seven years, you know, making that King James Version, right? So, and they finished it and, and it was not like as if King James said, this is the version that all of you must read. He now said, this is, he just created the version and endorsed it, that this is a version that everybody can be happy with and we can be okay with and all that. That King James version was just, that name, King James version, was the name that was given to him because he was the one that um, sponsored it. It's not because he was the one that owned it, or he was the one that said, uh, this is the version that is good, or he was the one that determined it. Do you understand? He, just, he sponsored it as a solution to people arguing over the preferred translation. Do you understand that? And so that's why actually the correct name is the authorized version. Do you understand? It's actually the authorized version, you know? So, yeah, so that's how the King James Version came about to be. And this was the version that, you know, this is the version that everybody became known with. And it's very important to know that 
by this time, some people had already gone to America to begin to colonize America. Many of those people did not like this King James Version. They wanted to still go with the Geneva Bible English translation that was the initial, the older version and everything. So, you know, so that just gives you um, a picture of, of, um, of what it was like. The script, the Old Testament, the original scripts that they used to translate to the King KJV were scripts that were like from the one th that were like from 1000 AD. They were Greek manuscripts, uh, Hebrew manuscripts, Latin manuscripts from the period of around 1000 AD. Those were the scripts that they used to translate into the KJV. Do you understand that? Now, without any doubt, the KJV was actually a very brilliant work. It was actually a very brilliant work. It was the first of its kind that was the whole Bible done by a committee and not by one person. So, uh, without any doubt, in its time, it was fa fantastic. It was a fantastic um, um, translation. A translation that, that was so fantastic that till now it is a surviving and it's still good for hermeneutics and exegesis. That's how, you know, that's good it is. So, based on that mentality, there are a lot of people that began to think that because of that, KJV is the best. And, you know, as time began to go on and the English began to become more outdated, and as the English got, got more outdated, they began to have this feel of being classical or being the original um, translation. And when people began to do new translations or later, they began to say that this translation, the English sounds like my English. Now one sounds like olden days English. And so it must be the one that is original. Do you understand? But no, things don't work like that. So let me tell you something about Bible translations. And let me tell you something about Bible, the translations generally. That makes it very different from I'll, I'll try to comp compare and contrast with the Quran for you to understand some things about the Bible. And if you understand these things very well, there are some things and there are some worries that people may have about the nature of the Bible, whether it is um, inerrant and all those things that you really understand some things about. Now, just like I gave you the overview, when Jesus died and the apostles wrote letters to people and the gospel, um, the writers of the gospels had written, don't forget, Hebrew Bible had always been that one D. The Greek translation of the Old Testament too, that the Septuagint, that one D on ground, right from time. So leave that one aside. Now for the New Testament, the apostles and the, you know, the early witnesses wrote the books of the New Testament. And as they wrote the books of the New Testament, the church was growing and the church was exploding. At that time, the Christians, were like just like Apostle Paul said, they were not the rich, they were not the strong, they were the poor people. So they did not have the luxury of having the great educated scholarly scribes of the society sitting down and helping them to draw rule in the book and copy it for them and all those kinds of things. At that time, the men, in the, the people in the church, the, you know, the members of the church, the Christians were copying the Bible and sharing one another. And in fact, there was a time when there was, there was serious crucifixion when the Romans were persecuting Christians and asking them to burn their Bible. That is the word, that's, one of, that's the place where the word, um, what's that word? I'm trying to remember. There's a particular word that means betrayer that we use nowadays. That, that's where it came from at that time. Because one of the ways that they were using to forgive Christians was that if you can bring, because it was very difficult to get paper. Paper was expensive. Writing was expensive. So Bibles were a big deal that Christians were really copying to have among themselves. So one of the ways that people that used to, in those days, when, um, when the Romans want someone to betray Christianity, what they do is that they will ask you to go and bring a Bible so they can burn it. So if you bring a Bible and you can burn it, they will give you 
penal. That's one of the things that people in Christians in those days considered apostate. For you to burn the Bible, they would not to bring you back. And it caused the whole squabble that time in the fourth century where they say people that betrayed the church and burnt Bible, should we bring them back to church and all those kinds of things? So it caused the whole fracas back then. So you can imagine how it was initially. So you had people copying the Bible. Of course, when they were copying the Bible, one person left out comma, one person left out one sentence, eh, one word. One person left out one this. You know, you, you know. of course, if all of us copy this, a book, when by the time all of us are done copying, the books will not be 100% the same. However, when those who were copying, they used their, they did their best to ensure that they were copying the thing. But even with that, they were copyist errors. Do you understand that? They were what? Copyist errors. Maybe one word in one um, manuscript to be different, one word to be missing, one word was added, one word they were not sure what it was, so they wrote the two words that it could mean together side by side. You know those kinds of things, right? Those kinds of things were happening. So by the time the church was getting more stabilized and there was less persecution in 382, um, that's when the church now translated it to Latin to give everybody. Do you understand that? So, don't forget that in 634, the Muslims now left Arabia after Muhammad died, and his father-in-law, Abu Bakr Anko, they began to conquer all of the northern, all of North Africa and the Middle East. And as they were conquering, they were burning books. Do you understand? So like the um, Library of Alexandria now that was in Egypt that had a lot of books, we don't know how many books we have lost because of the Muslims. But story tells us History tells us that, um, was it Uthman or Omar? That he told, it was Uthman, he told them to burn all the books. And they were using the books to boil public baths for like four or six months or something, as firewood. The books from the Library of Alexandria. They were using it as firewood to warm the public baths. Public baths is where people in public will come and bath in the public hot water for public bathing. That it was, it was warm, boiling the water for six months. That's how they used, that's how they bought all the books. So all those old manuscripts, all those books that people like, eh, eh, all those books that people like Apollos then were reading, all those books in Alexandria, they, they bought everything. So, a lot of those Greek manuscripts that were really old were bought and lost to history. But thank God that they are not, that's not the only place where there are Christians in the world. There were Christians all over the world. Now, why am I saying all these things? When the committee of, King James Version, of the King James Version were sitting down to write their books, they were interpreting based on the oldest text that they had at the time were books from like, were Greek texts from like 1000 AD. Do you understand? So we're using book Greek texts from like 1000 AD to translate. But something has happened. Since the 1600s, our science and our philosophy and our technologies and everything has improved Archaeology has improved dramatically. Coupled with the fact that in the, since 1930s, 1940s, because of archaeology, we've now been finding manuscripts that were older than even the manuscripts that the committee of KJV used. Do you understand that? Manusc Greek manuscripts of the New Testament that were older than Old Testament that were even older than them. We have portions of New Testament scripts from 70 AD. Jesus died 30. Do you understand how old that is? Do you understand how old that is? Hey. From the first century, we have portions from 150. Dead Sea Scrolls began to come up. We began to see scrolls in Ethiopia that were that old. Guess what? 
when they gather them together, these old ones that we are just finding now, and we are still finding. I heard like two years ago, we found the book of Mark somewhere in uh, Egypt. Complete book of Mark. That one they said is even old too. That's like 120 AD. By the time they pack everything and put it together, guess what? It's the same as the one in 1000 AD. Did you understand what I just said now? You guys didn't get it. You didn't get it. When they found the scrolls that were oldest, untouched for 2,000 years, and scrolls that Christians were translating from, from 1000 AD, they found that the body was essentially the same. What will you find? Copies differences. So you now see the one from 150, where someone wrote uh, dog, then dogs, and the one in 1000, they now wrote dogs. Do you understand? Or someone wrote, the other one was dog, the other one was, you know those kinds of things. Copies, differences, what you found. So essentially, the Bible, the core corpus of the book is the same. We now have, so now as we are today, we have thousands of manuscripts. I think we have like 5,000 manuscripts from different ages and different times, all of them with essentially the same information. So now, when, since KJV happened, we now have a new precedent for the way we translate Bibles. The way we translate Bibles now, we don't use individuals anymore. We use committees. That is, the, I can speak for the best translations, right? So the best translations use committees. You gather a group of scholars that know Greek, know Hebrew, that they are old, old, old men, old men, that all their life, that's the only thing they've been doing that are Christians that we can vouch for, sit down and start translating, all of you together. So one person cannot say, this is the way I'm having revelation. Say, there's no revelation that you're having. All of us will have revelation together. So that's why you have books like NIV, powerful. NIV was done by a committee of, um, let me check. Um, um, I think it was done by a committee of uh, uh, Fifteen scholars. Hallelujah. Praise God. A committee of what? Fifteen scholars. Hallelujah. So, um, so, that's what, so now, when we are translating, so our newer versions now, like NIV, when, like the NIV now, when we translate, we are not translating from King James. Do you understand that? We are not translating from King James. We, what we are even doing now is that we are translating using these new manuscripts we are finding that are even much older. We are comparing them with the one of 1000 AD. And that's what we are using to translate into English. Do you understand? So that means that now we even have more information than the guys from KJV even had. So we are not translating from KJV to this. NIV, for example, is from the manuscripts to the English. Do you understand that? And so that is the reason why if you have a good NIV Bible, you will see a lot of notes about where there could be differences, where the corpus is different. You see, in, this, in most of the manuscripts, this phrase was not there. But in, in like in 70% of the manuscripts, this phrase was there. Now, this is the good thing. All the places where you see this phrase was not there, this phrase was there, all of them are, based, are same copist errors. None of them have any theological or doctrinal thing that hinges on them. Do you understand that? So there's no denomination today that will say their doctrine is different because of their translation. Do you understand that? It's very important that you know the difference because when people say eh, the Bibles are different and all that because one place said eh, 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 as the rather, rather Romans chapter 8 one. 
Therefore, there's therefore now no condemnation. And that one said, and therefore there's no criminal condemnation is not there. That's because of that. Uh, does that change the sound of Romans chapter 8? Of course not. He said, this time going not by prayer fasting. And was not in the original before. Does it change the doctrine of prayer and fasting? No. Church out together. Do you understand that? So, um, so, what, so what now happened was that so they had that translation. That translation now became the um, translation that most Christians began to use. It was initially rejected by most of the Christians, but later on it became accepted as well as the KJV came to be. Furthermore, the English that the KJV uses can be difficult for contemporary people to appreciate the richness of the message from. Right? Using contemporary English, because language evolves. Language evolves. Language evolves. So, now this is the thing. Now, this is a, a thought that you should think about. When you're talking about inspiration, the truth is that the people that were inspired by the Spirit wrote their inspiration down in a particular language. But that does not mean that because we don't understand their language, we cannot, um, what they call it, receive or learn fully of what they've said. Because the way God has structured language, hmm? communicating the meaning and communicating the thoughts is something infinitely more complex than just how the words sound to you. Do you understand that? It's, just, it's more complex than just how the words sound. So that's why this Muslim idea of um, the prophets communicated Arabic, um, the God showed the prophets the Quran in Arabic. So because of that, all of us must learn Arabic so that we can fully understand what it says. You know it does not solve your problem. Do you know why? Because the Arabic he was speaking 1,600 years ago, even if you are speaking the exact same language, hmm? the meaning and the gravitas of those words 1,600 years ago is not the same as now. Do you understand? Let me explain what I mean. Even if 2,000 years from now, the English that people are speaking then is exactly the same English I'm speaking today. There's no difference and there's no distinction and all that. Today, when I'm talking about phone, and I'm using phone as an analogy in my message, I'm talking about phone as a device that I'm using to call, but I'm also storing my personal information and everything. By those days, phone might be the thing that you store all your identity on. So, when I use phone as an analogy now, if the person uses phone as an analogy 2,000 years from now, you know it will not be the same meaning. Do you understand what I just said now? So, that's why when Muslims are saying that um, the Quran was written in Arabic, so we must learn Arabic, it doesn't solve your problem. It doesn't solve your problem. So, this is the reason why we can trust the scriptures. The reason why we can trust the scriptures is because whenever you see the Bible, Whenever you see any manuscripts from 100 years after, 70 years after Jesus was died, 200 years after, 300 years after, 500 years after, 1,000 years after, 1,500 years after, that, um, um, that book, the corpus, is the same. They can be copist errors, but that is expected. In fact, if there are no copist errors, then we will know that someone is doing 419. Do you understand that? Do you guys get that? That's why the Bible that they had in Alexandria is not different from the Bible that they had in Byzantium. 
is not different from the Bible that he had in Germany. It's not different from the Bible that he had in, you know, Eastern Europe. There might be copist errors, but the body of the knowledge was the same. So, another thing to note is that there was no time when the content of the Bible was at the mercy of one person. Do you understand that? There was no time when the content of the Bible was at the mercy of one person. Which is unlike, um, you know, the Quran, which is very different. Let me give you a summary of how the um, Quran came about to be. When the prophet was alive, he was be- receiving um, oral revelation from the angel, Jubrin. So the prophet, Salih Wasalam, would communicate his revelation to the people around him and they would memorize what he has said. So it was a culture of oral tradition. Do you understand that? It was a culture of oral tradition. So he would give them oral revelation and they would cram the revelation just as he had said it. So there were a lot of people alive who were all cramming what he was saying. Do you understand? A lot of people were alive. There were a lot of people that were alive that were cramming the things that were coming out of his mouth. Do you understand that? So, when he now died, a lot of these people that were cramming all the things that he said, you know, you know, was, you need to remember that all those cultures of antiquity were very good at oral tradition. They, were, they had very good memories. Do you understand? They had very, very good memories for remembering stuff like this. So, when he now died, um, when he now died, a lot of the people that had crammed what he said were also the people that were going to war. They were the men that were going to war and fighting. So, the caliph that came immediately after him was Abu Bakr, right? His father-in-law, the father of his wife, Aisha, that he married at the age of nine. So, he was like his guy. Do you understand? Uh-huh. So, his guy now became the caliph after him. So, those ones now went to war, and there was even a story of one war that they went to, that 300 of the men that were so-called reciters, they went and killed all of them. They went to war to fight, and they killed all of them. So the people that remember what the Prophet said were finishing. So Abu Bakr now said, ah, all of you, please write down, before you forget, please write down um, all your the revelations of the Quran on different papers in different places and all that. So they began to write it down in different places. But of course, just like I described now, it was a mess. Because people were just writing down all kinds of things, writing down all kinds of stuff and different kinds. In fact, at that time, the Arabic script was still being developed. Let me not even go into all that one. They shall wrote it down. And everything. After Abu Bakr, um, uh, Omar became the next caliph. And after caliph, after Omar, the next caliph became was Uthman. Now, in Uthman's time, problem now arose because by this time they had conquered up to Iraq, Baghdad, conquered some part of North Africa, and everything. They now found out that the people in, in Iraq they are quoting a different Quran from the people. The ones in Iraq are quoting a different Quran from the ones here. See, ah, problem before. People will start saying their own is correct, you know, and everything. Let's unify it. So he now, um, so one guy called Ibn, um, Ibn Kinnikan Zaid. They now called him. They now said, Komu Zaid. Let's just use your bad name. So that's how I remember it. They now called Said that. Said, come. Come and organize. You and some other guys, gather yourselves together. Make una gather the Quran. And let's get one unified Quran. Do you understand? So that's what Usman, uh, Usman was telling Said. So Said now went and told everybody that all the Quran that they have, everybody should bring it together. 
and all that. Usman now told them that also, you know, there are many Arabic dialects. So you know, they also now wrote it in their own dialects and all that. Usman now said, no, the dialect of the uh, uh, of the Prophet, Ali Wasallam, the Apostle of God. Now, that's the dialect that they should now write it in, the Qureshi dialect. So they now wrote it in that dialect. And Zaid now, Zaid now sat down and now said, okay, going forward, oh, this is the Quran. That's where he now said, any other book. This is the way he said this. He said, they now asked him that, okay, now that we have compiled the Quran, eh, all these other, there are some other books. What should we do? This is what Usman said. He said, if the book is different from, no, this, ah, God help me to remember this. You know. He said, if the, if the book, if the book is different from the Quran, um, the, the Quran is perfect. So if the book cannot add to the Quran, if the book is add, mm, this is what mm, sorry, this is what he says now. I remember now. He said, if the book is less than the Quran, then that means it is not up to the Quran. Then therefore, burn it. It's not as good as the Quran. If the book has more than the Quran, then that means that it has things that are not in the Quran. Therefore, it is incorrect. Also, do what? Burn it. So essentially, any book that's not Quran that sounds like Quran from their period, they now burnt everything. You should also note that uh, Usman was also um, the prophet's guy. He also was the father of one of his wives, Afsat. So his guy too was the guy that was second after him. So they now bought every other book and now came up with only one. But even that one book safe. But let me not go into all those things. Anyway, but guess the funny part. There were some guys. So these things I'm saying, all these people were Muhammad's guys. Though. They were all alive during this time. So it's not as if it was long after. All this thing was between 20, 15, 30 years after he, was, after he died. Some of the guys that when Muhammad was alive, he said... Now, these guys, they remember the thing why they talk past. That means these guys, they crammed the Quran, I said, very well. He mentioned some four guys. That these guys are very, very good. From Sahih Muslim and Sahih Bukhari, we know for a fact that those guys were not okay with the Quran that Said did. Do you remember the story? I said, Usman told Said to compile the Bible. Usman and Said now did it. And then, Usman now told Said that any book that is not that, I say Bible, the Quran, any book that is not that Quran, they should burn everything. There were some guys that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said that those guys were very good, that they remember all the Quran. They were alive when Said did his own Quran. Do you know what those guys said? Like uh, one of them, let me get the name. There's, uh, there's Ubayi and there's Masud. Masud was the first person that the Prophet called as very good, that he would remember the Quran. Masud said, that Quran they are carrying is deceitful Quran. No? It, all this is like Sahih Bukhari. You can go and check. Go online, you see it. He said that Quran, you people should not be reading it. Oh, it's an incorrect Quran. Another one too, Ubayi. They asked him. Even in fact, there are some portions of the uh, Quran today that they wrote. They write it there that Ubayi had a different um, quotation. Do not Usman said that. But one of the quotes that Usman was noted to say, it was noted to say that there are some chapters that Ubayi used to recite. That are not in the Quran, and they will tell him to stop reciting it. That your own is not in the Quran we have compiled. He said, This one he's reciting. He heard this from the prophet's mouth himself, so nobody can collect it from him. So till he died, he was reciting for himself. He was the one that they wrote that they are still using today. Let me tell you the one that's even shocking. There was one revelation that the prophets give that they wrote down that Aisha wrote down. Or I don't know who wrote it down, but Aisha had it that they wrote down on paper that she put under her bed. That portion was regards to, I think you can also say it in Sahih 
Muslim too. She put it under her bed. That revelation was about breastfeeding and stoning. Stoning women or something like that. But Aisha put it under her bed and she forgot that she's supposed to give the compilers when they're compiling the Quran. She said the sheep ate it. That's so that that's the end of that one. That portion has gone like that. <laughs> now, <laughs> you can't make this stuff up, seriously. I'm not joking. If you think I'm lying, go and research. It's all there. Send me a message and tell me where I was wrong. Now, look at the way that book came about. And some people will say that um, that book is good, is original, because that is the way it has been from the beginning. A book that was presided over by one person. Let's even assume that those guys were trying to be faithful. A book that was presided over by one person. That in its collation, the people that had the revelation were not okay with. And a book that has stayed over 2,000 years and has been consistent in its corpus. You know they are not the same. This difference is important for you to understand because when you speak to a Muslim about the Quran, they will say that's how the, the Quran has been the same from the beginning. First of all, that is not even true. But let's leave that aside. Because they were, at that time, the Nabataean script that they were using to write the Quran at that time still had a lot of issues and a lot of words were not clear. That they had to be updating and editing as they were going on. That's why today, I think there are like 13 or so different translations of the same Quran. You can go and check all these things. So even if we grant that those translation parts is not true, the compilation of the book itself was not done by the ecclesia. It was not the work of the body. It was the work of one man who determined how things go. Only God knows what they decided to leave and what they decided to take out. Only God knows how much editing. Only God knows how much abrogation. Only God knows what will have happened there. Do you understand that? Having said that, is the KJV better than other translations? Is KJV the best? No. But it is better than some translations. Number one, any translation that was done by one person. And we have translations like that. There's one translation. What is the name? The na eh? <laughs> is that not the one that said Jesus told him that there's more addition he wants to give him? <laughs> that one, you know, follow day. Right? Translations that are by, done, done by individuals, generally few. Translations that are done from, um, from KJV or from a translation, they are not okay. The best translations are translations that are done from the original manuscripts by a committee of elders. Whenever that is done, that translation, you can be sure that you'll be good. And this is also the reason why when pastors are preaching and they're trying to, um, you know, sometimes you can get carried away when you're preaching and you now say things like, eh, all those boys that used to cram Greek and Hebrew and all that, and using to, they can pejoratively refer to the, um, use, doing hermeneutics with Greek and Hebrew. Hmm? It's wrong. Because learning Greek and Hebrew adds to the richness of how much we can do our, our hermeneutics. Do you understand that? It adds to the richness. So when someone is saying uh, all the people that are always cramming Hebrew and Greek, it's wrong. 
That's not a bad thing. That's a very good thing that we should do. Even if Jesus was speaking English, hmm, we would still have to do a lot of hermeneutics to analyze the words the way they were being used in his time. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? So, all that kind of study is important. All those kind of study is important. Another question. So, what then is the place of the Holy Spirit? Shebi Jesus said he will give us the Holy Spirit that will guide us into all truth. So, what is the place of the Holy Spirit? How is it helping us? And why is it that um, even if the Bible is the same corpus, we have different translations of the Bible? Now, this is where I'm going to talk pastorally. I have a lot to say. So, let me talk now. Listen. The Holy Spirit is at work in every believer. Whenever a believer sits down, um, yes, our hermeneutical tools, our tools for exegesis can actually limit our revelation. Because if you don't even understand what is being said properly, the Holy Spirit will not come and put what is not there. Do you understand? So, he will, so for example, if you don't even understand what heaven means, hmm? the Holy Spirit will not come and tell you this is what heaven means. You have to first understand it. And then when you understand, the Holy Spirit will now give you revelation based on what is being said. So, your um, hermeneutical deficiencies, your, your lack of tools for study can actually affect you. For example, someone that is an illiterate that cannot read, they can actually hinder you. So, it is possible that someone, because of lack of training in how to study stuff, will now misunderstand some things that are being said, which is, which is, um, which is a legitimate issue. But that problem is not... Um, is not a comment on how the Bible is defective. It's not a comment on how God, if God is true, he should preserve the Bible. Because even when Jesus was alive and revealed himself and spoke to people, he will speak to some people, ho-ha, and they will still not understand what he was saying. Do you understand that? He will speak to some people, and some people will still hear something else. He's telling some people that I will die and rise again, and I will be kinikon, and he said... All those things. And some people will be hearing blasphemy and trying to kill him. You know, these kinds of things. So, people's lack of, um, people's deficiencies or inadequacy in studying can be a factor. Another thing that can be a factor is agenda. Volition precedes intellection. When a person has an agenda and they're not, at, um, what they call it, approaching God's word with meekness, and they have a plan, and they have a filter, and they have some kind of negative biases that they want to use to read God's word, what will happen is that that scripture will contort into what the bias is. Do you understand that? When a believer has adequately equipped themselves for study, that means you understand the language that the translation is in reasonably, and you approach God's word with, God's word with meekness, what happens is that the Holy Spirit does a work in your heart so that the essence of that message will always come alive in you. And so that is the reason why, despite the fact that we have so many denominations as Christians, our differences in denominations are not based on differences in the Bible. They are based on differences in our emphasis and in our view of things. Do you understand that? Do you get what I just said now? That is why those differences are like that. That is a proof of the Holy Spirit being at work in us. That is a proof that the Holy Spirit is actually at work in the church. For example, 
baptism, child baptism, and um, adult baptism. The scriptures are clear on baptism. You will not see anybody that says that they are believing in baptism because what Jesus said here sounded like this. Do you understand? Why do you believe in baptism? Because you had some ideas and you ran with it. And you believe in those ideas. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? And so that's why you developed it. All the things that we are arguing about, kinikon, kinikon, all those things that I used to... Let me say this at this point. There's a reason why it seemed like as if as time went on and as Christian became, as the church or Christianity became more and more comfortable and more, more and more entrenched, we began to have more and more differences of opinion as time went on. There's a reason why it looks like as if the farther back you go, the more unified in belief system the church seems to be. There's a reason why. Do you know why? The reason is because comforts and luxury affords us the time to have different kinds of emphasis and different kinds of ideas. The only time that the church had a real difference in thought that was not just in mere semantic, that was core, was in the days of Arianism and all those days of high Christology arguments. And guess what? Because of scripture is clear, they were able to resolve it clearly that there was no argument. When we are comfortable, there is no persecution. There is nothing to stress us and there is nothing to worry about. That's when we have time to begin to develop some ideas and we will now tabernacle on those ideas and make a big deal out of them. That's why if you look at many of the doctrinal differences that churches have, they are objectively, hermeneutically minor, but emotionally and psychologically major. That means that if we look at those doctrines objectively, some of them can actually even be boiled down to mere semantics. But they are a big deal because of the way we feel about them. Let me give you one good example. Non-reformed, um, non-reformed um, eternal security. Once saved, forever saved. Do you know that there's a very real example? Do you know, do you know that that thing can, that, that idea, that argument can actually boil down to mere semantics? It can actually boil down to mere semantics. One person says a believer can reject the faith and the person is no more saved. And that person says a believer cannot become unsaved. The first person that says the believer can reject the faith, you say we are, we are born by, by we are, you know, we are saved by faith and then you know, for you to reject your faith, you are not saved and all that. And that person now says, no, if you reject the faith, it's not like you will never leave it. If you leave, leave it, it's because you never left it or you still have it. Guess what? When we show up in heaven, it will seem like as if all of us are correct. Because there's no way to really, metaphysically, prove anybody wrong. Because if someone was saved, and the person rejected the faith, the people on this side will say, the person rejected the faith, that's why the person is not saved. The people on this side will say, it's because he never believed. We are just seeing it now, that he never believed. Do you understand that? Some people will now say, ah, no, there is saving faith and there is just ascent. There is just mental ascent. What he had before was mental ascent. And those that have mental ascent can draw back. But there are those that have believing faith 
that can never go back. Those people that have believing faith that can never go back are the ones that can never fall away. How do you prove people wrong when they are reading their Bible by seeing all these things? Do you know that all these ideas that we've had from the early days of the church, different pastors and in different ways have said the same things, but they never argued about them because for, for each of them it was just a matter of pastoral emphasis. But those things have become an issue that we can sit down to argue about because we have time. There is time to argue. If Boko Haram was two streets away, hmm? if Boko Haram was two streets away and they've just beheaded like two or three pastors, my pastor or your pastor, and they beheaded them, you know, you know, have time to be arguing whether someone is saved or not. <laughs> you know, you know, have time to be arguing, ah, this one, are you eternally saved though? You are not eternally saved though. At that point, all you know is that you want people to believe the gospel. And you don't want them to shine to, to backslide. Whether they whether they really backslide though, they not really backslide though, it does not do. do you understand that? It was when the church had become very comfortable and everything was okay that people would now come and say, eh, let's baptize our children. Eh, you know what? Let's do penance so that you can go to heaven. And that person now say, No, don't say that. Can you come? When they were in the days of Diocletian, and <laughs> They were literally looking for you people so they can stick you and roast you on fire. Do people have time to be arguing, saying, eh, let's be dropping penance so that if your, if your father has died, yeah, you can drop penance so that you can go to heaven. Is there time for that? <laughs> so what you now find out is, and, and that's why Christians everywhere are known as Christians. That's why we have that um, Nicene Creed that we read. When you look at the Nicene Creed, Christians all have some things that they believe in common that make Christianity Christianity. There are some things that we can argue about that we can have differences of thought about. But the things that make a Christian a Christian, they are seen in the word of God and they are very clear. And all of us agree on them. There's no Christian anywhere that you go and meet that will say that we don't have a triune God. There's no Christian anywhere that you go and meet that will not say Jesus died and rose again for our sins. There's no Christian anywhere that you go and meet that will not say Jesus was born of a virgin and was crucified by Pontius Pilate. Do you understand that? There's no Christian anywhere that you will go to that will say that there's no spirit of God that comes upon us and takes over our lives. You cannot be arguing that, eh, okay, we have the Holy Spirit too, but we cannot speak in tongues. That's not what actually makes you a Christian. So we now have denominations based on how important those emphases are to us. Do you understand that? So denominations actually are a demonstration of our psychological states with respect to some things. So it is very important to you to speak in tongues. I must speak in tongues. Let's back, gather ourselves so that we can speak in tongues. Me, I don't like the way people are speaking in tongues. You people sound funny in my ear. Let's stay one side. You people, you are saying that God does not determine those that are saved, but God is sovereign. We, we believe that you have an effect in it. Or you have, an, you have a say in it. 
So we will go and form our thing. Meanwhile, the people that wrote all those books affirmed both at the same time. And that's why it seems like as if many of these arguments can never go away. Because many of our differences indoctrinally are a demonstration of our own psychological state with respect to some things. That's why we tell you guys that there are some things that we're arguing about. Things like God's sovereignty versus human agency, respect to outcome for salvation and all those things. Both are true at the same time. How both are true is when we get to heaven that we will know. Church, all together. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? So, it looks like as if Christians are divided, but we are not really divided on the core. That's why when you get to a Methodist church, the gospel that God them saved is what you believed, and that's what they also believed. So, what they're now arguing about is, should we have liturgy? That means when we come to church, should we carry staff and walk and burn incense? Or should we just come to church and freestyle and just sing like Hillsong? Me, I want to sing like Hillsong. I don't want to wear uh, clothes. I want to just walk up and preach and say, my God's going to save you. My God. You say, no, I don't want to do that one. We must use Latin when we are preaching. Because Latin makes us feel serious. We will start our own. You can be doing your own. That's where denominationalism comes in. It's psychological attachment to minors. And that's why all of us will be saved. Even though we have plenty of denominations. Yes, I said it. If you believe that Jesus died and rose again, he was born of a virgin, you believe that Jesus is God in the flesh, you are saved. Everything you add to it is your problem. Yeah, you don't believe. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Praise God. You know, very, very, very funny thing. If you go to 1 Corinthians 15, Apostle Paul tells us the initial creed that all believers believe. Let's, let's open it. 1 Corinthians 15. Now, scholars tell us that this creed was that this creed was this creed was what Christians from the very beginning when Jesus rose again that is what so by the time of Apostle Paul when he was writing this thing down this was what the churches were reciting so and um, 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 Bible scholars and textual critics will tell us that when you look at this particular part, um, it is it's actually a creed that Apostle Paul recited when they were writing it down. And this is what Christians always believed. And look at what he said. First Corinthians 15, for verse 3. It says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. This is the creed now. That Christ died for our sins, according to the words, scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the words, scriptures. That he appeared to Kephas and to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to my, more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Most of whom, okay, no. The creed actually stops at according to the scriptures, verse 4. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. So we have a lot of denominations. Not because the Bible is different, obviously. Not because the gospel is different, obviously, but that as far as the outworking of the gospel is concerned, there is high theology and there is low theology, and we have psychological attachment to certain things. Those things are what push us in our impulses to create denominations. And that's why when we have external threats and external problems, what you will find is that denominations are going to begin to shrink again. That's why we have plenty of denominations flourishing in the South. If you go to Iraq and Iran, there are many denominations. 
You go to the north, there's no time. You can worship in any church. You can go to Equa, worship. Go to Baptist, worship. Hallelujah. Church, are we together? I hope you understand. So, is KJV the best version? It's not. It's not the best version. It's not, so, you don't need to stick with KJV and say, it's only KJV I'm going to read or something, no. What you do is that if you are someone that wants to understand God's word and you want to draw maximally from it, hold on to versions that are um, done with the advantage of high textual criticisms, high when we are fully armed to do good hermeneutics, NIV is probably is up there. Do you understand? And then you also arm yourself with a concordance, have materials that give us insights into the language that the inspired folks wrote it in. And then you study based on that. Now, when you are reading the Bible, not necessarily for hermeneutics, but, also, but for, you know, for comfort, you are reading it for comfort, you are reading it to, um, when you are reading it more leisurely, you know, you can read some versions just to, how will I call it? Should I say, I don't want to say spice up, sounds weird in my head. But you know, to, you know just want to read. You can read the message, you can read all those versions and all that. But when you want to study and say, what does God's word say? What did Jesus say? What did the apostles believe? Hmm? You go and carry versions that committees and were done based on the original manuscript. KJV is close, but KJV is old English, which you might not be able to relate with. And the manuscript that was used that were not as new, were not as old as the manuscript that we have currently now. But it's also a good version for you to read with. Do you understand that? There's one more thing I wanted to say. Praise God. Alright, so I think that's it. I'll remember. I think that's it. Um, if you have any questions, uh, we'll have five minutes to just put together the questions and then we'll answer. If not, um, we'll just go. And so, uh-huh, I remember now. And so this is also one of the reasons why in our study to understand what the scriptures say and what the apostles say, it is good that we match it with tradition. The danger of saying my translation alone or my Bible alone is that it has limited the revelation from that scripture to your level of understanding or the level of understanding of your pastor. That is a very quick way to find yourself into all kinds of issues. Do you understand that? That's why it's important. That's, these are the things that help our study to be good. These are things that help us be, try it. you see how good it is. It's good to know that St. Augustine, that Jerome, that Basil, that all these people, Origin, Irenaeus, these old men, Barnabas, you know those guys wrote letters and they wrote commentaries and all those kinds of things. It's good to know what they said about the Bible you are reading. It's good as you are reading and you find yourself thinking like a Nigerian and you want to understand it in a certain way that you will read a, a Christian from 200 AD talking about this same scripture and talking about it in a certain way so that you can prevent yourself from going out of the rails. Do you understand that? For example, it is sola scriptura in quotes. It is the Bible and the Bible alone that will make someone sit down. I'm sorry to say this, but it's just the truth. That will make someone sit down with their Bible by themselves and decide that the book of Hebrews was not written to Christians. 
That is what solar scriptura does. Because you decide by yourself. If you just go and ask the Christians of 200 AD, 150 AD, 300 AD, what did you, you guys were the ones that were there? What did you guys say about Hebrews? And they tell you that it was written to Christians. You know, you will not be able to just say some things. Just what I just said now. So this idea of is not wrong, but I want you to understand what it means so that you don't misunderstand me. This idea of God's word and God's word alone and nothing else, suggesting that any kind of understanding outside of from tradition is completely relevant is not true. If not, then why are we using concordance? It's not true because what it does is that it limits revelation to the person's pastor. So it is good to read what St. Augustine said. Do you understand? It's good to read what all those old men said. It's good to read it. It's good to read it. When you are reading on 1 Corinthians chapter 11 about communion and all that, you just sit down and say, eh, he was not talking about kinikon, he was talking about kinikon. By the time you read what the what tradition says, when you read what men from 200 AD say and they tell you, and you read it, that can tells you that more Christians from Apostle Paul's time have been doing the Eucharist. You know, it will help you balance. You know, at the very least, it will make you humble to not just say some things. So, those were part of the things that were causing fight between Protestants and the Orthodox churches. The Protestants came and now said, we are not listening to anybody. It's when we read the Bible, whatever we see, that's what we will build doctrine on. Those ones now say that. Ah, how will you say that? Some of people that don't even understand English, you would just read your own and start your own church. They say, no, some people have been talking since. We have to put their tradition in what? So when you go and ask the Catholic Church, Catholic Church will tell you that inspiration is both from what? Tradition, what the councils, councils said, and from what? Scripture. Do you understand that? So they will tell you that it's not just you want to read your Bible and say, I'm okay. The different councils, those old councils, 342, 353, what did they say? All those old men and babas, what did they say? What did the apostles say? What did their mentees say? When you put everything together, you have a, you know, a more rounded vision of how things are. Do you understand that? So, are there any questions there? Praise God. All right. So, um, if you have any questions in the future, you can reach me. But I hope that somebody has learned some things. And I hope this thing has helped you to appreciate the Bible more. So, so don't listen to anybody. Eh? Oh, you have a question. Okay, okay. Ask your question. Okay. Uh, it's the same thing, just um, more recent English. So, I think it was... Um, 19, it was 20th century, 1990s or so, 1980s, that they made the NKJV. It's the same thing, but just a more recent English to make it easier for people. So, basically, yeah. Mm -hmm. Concerning denominations. Are they not good in the sense of spiritual growth for a believer? Yes. Okay. Okay. I don't think denominations help for spiritual growth because what, what I think denominations do is that they just help us to hype our differences more. I think what, we, what is good for spiritual growth is local churches. If you have a good local church that is sound, that's what is good for spiritual growth. A good local church that is sound is good for spiritual growth. But Denominations with different kinds of emphasis. 
we build denominations on all kinds of things. And that's why we even see it hyper. The Protestants started it. And then we now began to see it, not even split the East and the West, things like iconography. Should we have images of Jesus or not? We don't have images of Jesus. That's what I'm telling you. That what causes denominations are psychological attachments to minors. What makes both of them Christians is the same. But you see, psychological attachment, should we have a picture of Jesus in church or should we not have a picture? So we say, ah, no, if you have a picture of Jesus in the church, that is, a, that is idolatry. God forbid. Jesus is not in that picture. Some people said, ah, what's the big deal? Jesus is, so it's not, we know it's not Jesus now, but it helps us to be aware in church. Say, no, because of that, if we go and do your own church, go and do our own. Bah! Church has started. So you now see some things, and we see this thing a lot in, you know, in our own area, in Pentecostalism. Your own pastor's emphasis is um, joy and moves and things of the spirit. You see, in this church, they have too much moves. They don't have word. Then you're not going to start your own church so that you can be having word. Meanwhile, your associate pastor is looking at you and he's saying, this is what they have too much. They don't have relationship teaching. He's going to start his own church where there will be relationship. You see what's happening? But what makes us all Christians is the same. So, Christians are superficially divided, but at the core, we are one. So don't listen to people and say, I don't mind them. That's to show that their religion is fake. They have plenty of denominations. No, we are superficially divided. We're like children of the same father, bickering over useless things. At the core, ask any Christian in Eastern Orthodox, ask him, did Jesus die for your sins? Yes. Did you praise again? Yes. Is his mother, is his mother Mary? Yes. Was she a virgin? Yes. Does he have, do you have the Holy Spirit? Yes. Is God your father? Yes. I mean, what is remaining again? That's not what I said, that the Trinity. Do you understand? What's remaining again? That's why all of us agree that Jehovah's Witnesses are not with us. Have you not noticed that? All of us agree. We were fighting Catholics. You say, you people in your church, you are always having one-hour mass. You are always having kineko, kineko. But both of us, when Jehovah's Witnesses entered the room, all of us would turn our back. Because all of us know that, how can Jesus be a creation? No. Mm-mm. We all know that. This thing no gel. So, we are superficially divided, but at the core, we are actually all believers. We are. Okay. Ah, this question you ask is not a question for this kind of program. It's not. It's not a kind of question because it's a very complicated question. The question is asking is if. Um, the scriptures have one meaning. Right, okay. <laughs> yes. The scripture has one meaning at every point in time. Okay, let me say it like this. Just as a summary. The scriptures have one meaning because when the writers were writing it, they had one, they had one intention. So you cannot, you cannot say you're not permitted to have a meaning that the writers did not have in mind. Do you understand that? Then that is not what they meant. And so since it's scripture, it's not just literature. Because if, if William Shakespeare writes something, even though he did not intend that that's the meaning, you are permitted to draw that meaning and say, this is my own idea because it ministered to me like this. But when it comes to scripture, what Jesus had in mind, eh? you have to follow what Jesus had in mind. So in that sense, scripture has one meaning. However, when that meaning that Jesus had in mind or the apostles had in mind, when he lands us, on us, it has diverse implications in our lives. Do you understand that? Do you understand that? 
So when Jesus was writing about the kingdom, obviously he meant that he was talking about his tabernacling with men, what he's bringing to man. But when that word lands on you, it has many meanings. Like Sheye said on Sunday, one of the implications is there's no more hot spots for the Holy Spirit anyway. The hot spot is inside what? Me. So if someone reads that and say, the kingdom of God has come, and he now says, ah, it means the Spirit is inside of me. Oh, you now come and say, no, 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 no. Jesus was talking about the kingdom. Do you understand that? So Jesus meant one thing, but the implications of what he said has effect in all our lives. That's why someone can read the Bible and say, the kingdom has come. Therefore, it means that my relationship and my marriage must be like this. Do you understand that? The meaning is the same, but the implication on his marriage follows from the meaning of that scripture. Do you understand that? So many times, that's why there's confusion. So many times when people say, this was my understanding of the scripture, pardon them, maybe what they're trying to say is that they got the meaning and how it affected that area of their life they were talking about is what they're talking about. However, there are some times when some people legitimately are receiving something outside what was intended. Do you understand that? There are some times when people are legitimately trying to receive something outside what, of, what was intended. What you will find is that they will not be able to hold it consistently because the entire corpus will edge out that revelation. By the time you compare tradition, look at what other Christians are saying, you will find out that that's, that thing will, you know, it will, it will edge it out, it will elbow that revelation out. So that's what I will say. So, Scripture has one meaning in terms of the fact that what the writers intended, but those, that meaning has implications on all the facets of our lives. Do you understand that? Was that a good answer? I hope that was, I hope that was satisfactory. Okay, two more questions. It's not in my mouth that they will say that. <laughs> that speculative. It's not me that will tell somebody whether they are saved or not. I'm not their Jesus. All I know is that Apostle Paul tells us what Christians believe. Hmm? Are we together? And they had these arguments in the Council of Nicaea. Athanasius asked their father. He said, who told you what you are saying? And when they asked him, he could not see anything. He said, when I was reading my Bible, he said, who told you what you were? Which apostle said it? And he could not answer. Therefore, all the Christians agreed that if the apostles did not teach it and God's word did not say it, Therefore, we are not with you. So, whether they are saved or not, it's not me that we tell you, ask Jesus. But I know what saves people. And what saves people is that God, <laughs> great is the mystery of godliness. God became what? Not a God, though. Who became what? You should answer me now. Sorry. <laughs> great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Thank you, Jade. God was manifest in the flesh finish so not a god not a boy of god not a creature of god god was manifest in the flesh <laughs> homo yes that's it so thank you very much second question yeah yes Me, I'm, I, I don't know what Samuel's problem is. <laughs> I don't know what he wants me to be doing now. I should come and start doing um, theological sermon in this kind of place now. Uh, what is this guy's problem? Okay, <laughs> so, um, no, the multiplicity of the denomination is not based on solar scriptura. 
it might have facilitated it because the moment the church came and said, the Protestants came and said, Sola Scriptura, bah, problem. That, if you, have, I, have you guys seen that map of how Christians were breaking out? First 1,000 years, we're all together. Then we fought over whether graving image or no graving image. So we're only two. For another 500 years, we're together. And then someone now said, scriptures alone. The moment he said, scriptures alone, like within 50 years, 100 denominations came out. Do you know why? The moment you say scriptures alone, everybody will go and carry their own Bible and say, ah, ah no, my own is correct. So there was tremendous value in the fact that the traditions that the apostles and their mentees and the councils had left in the church helped to keep people so that people don't come and get their own revelations. There was tremendous value in it. However, that, that value was overshadowed by the fact that the organization had become very corrupt. So it was now a matter of corruption versus solar scripture, so to say. That's what, that's what it became a matter of. So people argue and say, we should have been together and try and correct the faults that were inside. Do you understand? But evidence suggests that it's not easy like that. So there are some things that Jesus will, will not take care of. So I will not say that, um, you know, that the Sula Scriptura is a superior to any tradition and all that. This is what I will tell you guys as your pastor. Do you know what it is? I will say that truly, if you actually think about it well, Scripture itself is a form of tradition because it is what the apostles handed over to us. And so if we have a hierarchy of values, amen, people are abusing me that pastor and hierarchy of values. If we have a hierarchy of values, what is at the top of that hierarchy of values? Scriptures. Do you hear that? At the top of that hierarchy of values is what? Scriptures. Then we look at tradition. What did the fathers say? What did they not say? We understand. And then we help us to have a richer value. Then we'll now look at the past and say, what did those councils say? When there was an argument, what did those cardinals and those babas, when they discussed it, what did they arrive at? We can now add that one to also add color to it. But at the top, hmm? at the top, all scripture is given for what? So, so that's, how, that's how we put it. That's how we put it. Praise God. Eh? Yeah. Mm. That term as it is is dangerous. Okay, okay, okay. Yes. Yes. Yes, yes. Do you think not necessarily. Oh, it will be minimal. But that's the reason why we need tradition because as it is is not as it is to everybody. That's the issue. As it is, it's not as it is to everybody. Some of us were saved from Babalawo houses. Some of these things are understandable. Some of us were saved from Babalawo houses. Some of us were saved from uh, uh, Greek philosophy families. Some of us were saved from all kinds of background. Some people were saved from barbarian background. So we have a lot of junk. That the Holy Spirit is still working in our minds. We're now going to carry the Bible and say as it is. As it is to who? Think about it. You are getting saved at the age of 65. And all your life you have been an Ifa follower. 
You now get saved. You now give you Bible. You now say, Bible alone. Read it by yourself. For where? You will see, find that Bible when you read it. <laughs> there is no way you not need help. There is no way you not need help. That is the issue. That is the issue. Another question again. Ah. Well, yeah, we should do first though. Services. Yeah. Okay. No, 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 no. Solar scriptura means scripture alone. I mean, scripture alone is our only basis. What Martin Luther and Calvin meant when they said solar scriptura, you can check it with the reformed guys. When they meant solar scriptura, that's why they said uh, uh, soli dio gloria, uh, uh, the other four solars. Uh -huh. What they meant is alone. So what they meant solar scriptura, it means scripture alone. So it means that anything that is not in scripture, we are not believing it. You know, that kind of thing. So, think about it now. These guys, the Americans brought the gospel to Nigeria. That's part of what we are saying in this part of the world. Brought the gospel to Nigeria, but there was no form of organized planning and training. And people were just doing evangelism and all that. And then, one guy received the gospel and believed it. And then the next thing was that he would remove his shoe and be walking about to preach. And he would be wearing white garments. And then, he did some moves. And then, people have time to start wearing white garments. That's what solar scriptural causes. His Bible they are reading to help you know. Yeah. But based on their level of equipping for study, that's why I said your equipping for study is actually a limitation. Don't follow people to disab to abuse people for studying Greek and Hebrew. Don't follow them. That's why I when Apostle Paul would teach him. He said, study to show yourself approved. A workman that did not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. In the first book he wrote to him, you know what he said? He says, take time to study. Sit down and meditate. So that means that studying the Bible to get it good stuff out of it actually takes equipping. You, they will train you. They will train you. I don't want to say something because it will be like I don't want to contribute to this culture that's becoming rampant of Pentecostal bashing and all that. But... One of our heritage is the fact that the people, and thank God for them, because at the same time, they are over, the, the fact that they were not cooked in a certain tradition enabled them to be able to break free. And that's why Pentecostalism is actually the denomination that has evangelized the world the most in the last hundred years. We are responsible for most of the growth in the church, in the body of Christ. If there was no Pentecostal in the last hundred years, only God don't maybe Christians have been limited to Northern Europe and Western, Northern America and Western Europe. Do you understand? Pentecostalism spread the gospel. The gift of the Spirit spread the gospel. So that's the beauty of it. But remember I told you guys then that our story is still being written. One of the issues that we have had before now is that the people that lent it, the first people, they were all illiterate people that were not equipped. So they had a lot of issues. They had a lot of issues. They understood some things one way and all that. Do you understand? So... Thank you for listening to this message. We hope you were blessed. For more updates on our programs and audio messages, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at This Excellent Church. God bless you. Hey.